An absolute surge of InfoSec news this week, the likes of which will reverberate for years to come. In our interview, we talked to Grant Elliott on the state of InfoSec security in the healthcare space. China, Russia, North Korea, all our favorites in the news this week. Let's talk about it. Welcome to Securiosity. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Securiosity for October 5th. I am Greg Otto. And I'm Jen O'Daniel. Greg, how are you feeling? Uh, Jen, I'm just glad I have time to even talk to you this week. Uh, I've barely been able to sleep, let alone keep up on everything going on this week. There's just been so much news. Remember last week when we taped and then a huge Facebook security issue was announced? I mean, barely, because it feels like it was months ago. There's just been so much news that the Facebook thing <laughs> just feels eons ago. Ha. Let's talk about everything else that we have going on this week. Bloomberg is out with a monster story this week on how a California-based hardware company may be the victim of supply chain hack that has been impacted tech giants like Apple and Amazon. Current and former intelligence officials tell Bloomberg that Super Microcomputer Inc., which makes motherboards and other hardware components, contain a microchip that was implanted by members of China military. Supermicro, Apple, and Amazon have denied the claims, with Amazon saying in a lengthy blog post, quote, there are so many inaccuracies in this article as it relates to Amazon that they're hard to count. Greg, I'm really not sure where to begin with questions on this, so let's talk about your thoughts. Uh, this is massive, and this is going to be massive, and this is going to be the story that dominates the rest of the year, if not the next 18 months when it comes to what we do here at CyberScoop and just InfoSec News in general because of the implications here. Um, It sounds really scary. Yeah, if China was able to put a chip on servers that are in data centers across the world, and from a hardware perspective, they're able to open up a back door and take information and look at information and do whatever it is that they want, and they're doing it at high-level companies like Apple and Amazon, that's that's earth-shaking. I mean, the, the implications here are just so wide-ranging that it's hard to condense it into a five-minute conversation. Um, but what I think is really interesting here, and I've been thinking about this since the story broke on Thursday, is that, look, I I think right now that the way that the story is structured and with the denials and everything Mm -hmm. going on, I think that everybody can be right here except maybe Supermicro because they're the ones that had their hardware messed with in the beginning um, or from the beginning. Apple and Amazon might not have any of this hardware in their systems. And the, the story says that... Bloomberg has a timeline where there are a number of Apple engineers and Amazon engineers and different companies that are in Amazon's portfolio that were possibly aware of something and remedied it. So therefore, the problem might be gone. And Apple and Amazon, by coming out as strenuously as they did, can say, okay, we've washed our hands with this. We don't have a problem. That doesn't mean necessarily then that this problem isn't out there in some other data center, whether it's in the US, Europe, Asia, wherever. There, Those chips might be around all over the place. We don't know. I'm sure that there's a hunt at some other companies that do business sure. with 
super micro or within suppliers of server farms that have servers that might have super micro parts into this um, where they're going to go try to find these chips. I mean, that that's really what this is about now. Now we're, now we're on the needle in a haystack phase, really trying to go find if these chips are out there, which is something that's interesting about this story. This is a hardware thing. So if it's a hardware thing, it's tangible. And if it's tangible, well, then it, it, can be found with our to leads. This isn't a this isn't a software thing. Like it also kind of reminds me of the Kaspersky story that has been going on over the past twelve or eighteen months, where you start to get into code and you start to get into software. Sure. And with that, there's always a gray area in that. Oh well, the software does A, but it can be co-opted to do B. It gets into that. It's not a it's not a bug. It's a feature type thing. And there's always that cover with hardware. No, it's it's hardware like the computer and the microphone in front of me. Like it is a tangible thing. Right. So and there's no room for extra parts. Question for you. So when it was discovered, was it discovered on the entire supply of chips that they received, or was it discovered on like one or two? From the details that have been put in the Bloomberg story, it looks like it was pretty systemic. Finding one or two of these would signify a highly targeted attack. And from the details in the Bloomberg story, it sounds like this was an intelligence operation where it was just kind of throwing something out into the wind and seeing what comes back. There was a good metaphor in the Bloomberg story that this was dropping a branch in the Yangtze River and hoping that branch somehow ended up in Seattle. I mean, there really is sort of a blindfold dart throwing aspect to this that looks like for the the PLA that it might have landed. Uh, we don't know if any information, what information was taken, like there's no sort of actual concrete data exfiltration where whether it's a public government entity or a private company that have said like just hypothetically like the OPM breach, oh, this was how they, they manipulated the Department of Interior servers to get that information. We know now that that's not the case, but just hypothetically speaking, there's been no sort of concrete evidence to point to China and say, oh, this is how China got this data from this bank or this defense contractor or anything like this. Right. (laughs) Well, now we might have found out, and and, and it's why this is so big is that this is uh, the opening salvo of something that myself and that plenty of other experts and journalists are going to dig into because there's st- – because, look, Bloomberg stands by its reporting and Apple and Amazon are saying they are completely wrong. <laughs> I mean they can both be right, but there obviously needs to be more work done to find out what is going on because the implications here – we talk about supply chain all the time and this is a- an atom bomb as far <laughs> as the supply chain arguments go. This – totally speaks, not only speaks to the fears that have been brought up about supply chain security, but blows them entirely out of the water. Mm -hmm. Like this is like uh, an absolute like DEFCON 1 type of event when it comes to supply chain. Because if you look at the Bloomberg story, there's some art that shows how big one of these processors is. It's as big as a grain of rice. That was the metaphor that Bloomberg used. 
we're literally searching for needles in haystacks now. And if you want to talk about uh, data centers, <laughs> there's how many data centers are there across the world? How many servers are packed into data centers? I mean, these things are massive. We're talking about a grain of rice in massive warehouses of computers. So, like, this search is going to take months, and uh, I'm obviously going to be interested, and we're going to follow it here at CyberScoop. But, yeah, I, I, I can't stress how big this story is, particularly if Bloomberg's story checks out to be 100%. And... Uh, we can keep talking about this because it really speaks to the the gravity of the situation. From a business perspective, if Bloomberg does look like they have landed like all of the facts correctly, that levels Amazon and Apple's uh, market share when it comes to data centers. I mean, this is Amazon's business. We're talking about Amazon Web Services. We're talking about the cloud, and the cloud is just big servers like the ones that Supermicro makes sitting in warehouses across the world. Just look at this from the um, aspect of the JEDI contract that's out for the Department of Defense. The Department of Defense wants a single solitary company to run their cloud. Well, everybody has said that that contract is a shoe-in for Amazon. Now, Oh, I don't know now. I mean, this is a big wrench in the contracting for that. If you're a a DOD, high-level DOD person, and you're trying to stand up some IT, and you're learning now that China has a chip that could have backdoored Amazon stuff, that's a huge red flag. That is an absolutely huge red flag. So this is what I'm talking about when I'm talking about the implications. This reverberates so far out that... We could talk about this for the extent of our podcast. Well, I don't I want imagine, to because there's so, uh, yeah, so much I other news. I imagine we'll be talking about this on every podcast going forward for at least for a while. But I'm really surprised that when it comes to the federal government that we're allowing um, our manufacturers to use China companies to do any part of the manufacturing I mean, that that's But it that just, just speaks to the, to the labor and the manufacturing aspect of this which again it's funny i was on a uh, call with the the white house the, the white house uh, later on friday is releasing like the report about the defense industrial base and what they yeah. need to do to fix it and they talked about five pillars within the defense industrial base that are big problems one of them is manufacturing the fact that we don't make anything here in this country when it comes to like the supply chain and the parts right and the fact that there's just not the knowledge to from a vocational standpoint to make that manufacturing stuff so where's everything going to go well china but we could solve that problem bring it to the u.s within you know a matter of a couple years right you can you know you look at states like virginia they've got tobacco commission money right all set to open up um, buildings with equipment um, in rural parts of the state, and you also have all the community colleges that could do workforce development and make it happen. No, and that is, don't get me wrong, I think that that is a good thing, and that is something that needs to happen, but it's clear that that even if that does happen, that's what, a three- to five-year initiative Probably. on the low end? Probably. Like, we don't, <laughs> like, look yeah. what just happened. We don't happen have now. that amount of time. This happen happened now. in 2014 and 2015. So I, I always think about that when we talk about these research reports and we get word of different APT groups because a lot of the work that 
is done because forensics take so long is six to 12 months. Um, behind us. Be, behind us. Yeah. And that's that's if the forensic job was a pretty low, not a low level job, but everybody did their jobs really, really well and got everything out in front. Normally, the, the, the time frame for that stuff is even longer, which means that we're behind the times and it always comes back to me thinking, well, what's going on right now? What's going on right now that is strictly damaging national security or economic security or something like that? Like, again, I, I've said this a couple times now, the reverberations of this story, if it does turn out to be 100% true, are going to have resounding ripple effects off InfoSec for years, if not decades to come. Amazing. So going back to last week, which again, seems like a year ago, Facebook announced Friday that it discovered a security incident affecting almost 50 million accounts. The social media giant discovered the breach earlier this week when its engineering team identified a vulnerability in Facebook's code that impacted view as, which is a feature that lets people see what their profile looks like to someone else. The company took swift action and tried to get out in front of it as best they could PR-wise, but the usual chorus of people from Capitol Hill and Europe's data privacy-minded agencies have sounded the alarm on this incident. Jen, what is the worst part about this to you? This falls in the category of something I just don't care about. Wow, really? You know, I kind of view Facebook as one of those things where if I put any data on Facebook about me at all, um, it's now viewable by everyone in the world, even though, you know, I obviously have privacy settings that, you know, don't allow that. But I just assume if I post something on there um, or put personal details about myself, everyone knows about it. So I guess I, I care a little bit less about this. But that said, you know, I, I was in that um, 50 million accounts. I did have to reset everything. Um, you know, so probably there's another profile of me somewhere um, out there, right? I've seen, I've gotten well, a bunch of... Yeah, so it's interesting that you say that. Uh, let's unpack this a little bit in that, you know, you're basically saying you don't trust Facebook to be able to handle any sort of, no. of data that you I, put I out don't. there. Yeah. So why do, you, why do you use the service then? Because to me, if there is that trust that something here is going on, and, and, and to be fair, Facebook hasn't found that there was any malicious use sure. of, of this data so far. I mean, they could come out after this podcast, the state didn't say something, wouldn't surprise <laughs> me at this point. Will. <laughs> but um, yeah, th there's there's a sense of that, that sense that you're talking about, that Facebook is not going to protect your data anyway, but yet you still use the yeah. service. That seems to me just to be counterintuitive. So Right. Yeah. No, I've never felt like Facebook was safe, but it's, you know, really the only mechanism to keep up with people that I went to like elementary school with and high school with and people that I, you know, won't call because I don't care that much, but. <laughs> so there's still value to this, even though sure. that they're clearly having issues protecting the information that you put yeah, on and, there. Yeah, and you'll not see me uh, post anything. So as locked down as I like to think my Facebook is, you know, one of my Facebook posts a couple years ago, you know, went viral on Twitter you know, of all things. And, okay. and someone just sort of screenshotted what I put and then it, it sort of went across um, Twitter. Um, you know, nothing interesting. It was actually kind of, like, kind of funny and, okay. and sort of like, you know, go startups kind of thing. Okay. But, you know, I just don't, I've just never seen it as something where I would post something or give it information. Like I, my birthday on Facebook isn't right. 
Um, you know, I've made something up. Um, Interesting. I imagine okay. most people have, right? Um, well, no, I don't. I don't think so at all. I think most people have, at least birthday-wise. I think most people have their real birthdays on there. Like, I think a lot of that information that is out there is real, and that's what makes this so dangerous. Yeah, my, is that my city is not right. My city of birth isn't right. I mean, I've so that's made per- yeah. So that's so so up. okay. So so you're being pretty savvy with it. So it doesn't matter that they can't protect that information anyway because it's fake information overall. But if it's somebody with real information, I think that... It's a terrible idea. Yeah. The real information part, and it it funnels back to what I think is the most interesting part about this, is that I think this is going to be the first big GDPR test. And it's funny that this is going to be the first big GDPR test because everybody... I remember back in May when we were talking about this going into effect... And everybody was like, hmm, you know, it's going to be an interesting test case to see, like, what company is going to run afoul of this law, whether it's going to be somebody that is not technologically, you know, prevalent, you know, just a company that has been around forever, whether it's an airline or a manufacturing company, a car company, whatever. No, this is like a top flight, like 1A technology company that is staring down the barrel of a law that could take billions away from their coffers. This is going to be so interesting to watch in my eyes because I feel like GDPR was created partly because of all of Facebook's data collection policies. See, I thought Facebook would be the first company. That's what I've always thought. I always thought it was going to be Facebook that would be the first. I just wouldn't think that it would be... I, I, I did not. I, I guess that I may have been naive in that sense because, look, I've talked to Facebook, InfoSec, past and present, and they're really smart and really capable people. So if they're the really smart and really capable people, not that they're never going to be hacked, that's a fallacy, but that they would know enough not to run afoul of, of GDPR. And... When this happens and the Irish Data Protection Commission comes out and says, well, we're not really satisfied with the initial outreach that Facebook has had, oh boy, (laughs) this is shaping up to be a showdown. So to me, it is extremely interesting to watch from a GDPR perspective, and my nerdy self will be following that (laughs) aspect of it for the months to come. So let's move on to Russia. So criminal charges have been filed against seven Russian military officers for a wide-ranging hacking operation against sporting and anti-doping agencies in the United States, Canada, and Europe. The indictment accuses the members of the GRU, Russia's intelligence directorate, of using cyber operations to obtain private health data on athletes and anti-doping agencies and then publicly leaking the data. The indictment also accuses GRU hackers of targeting the Netherlands-based organization for the prohibition of chemical weapons and the Switzerland-based Speakeasy Lab, both of which were investigating the poisoning of a former Russian agent in England. Furthermore, the document alleges a GRU attempt to infiltrate the computer networks of a U.S. nuclear power company, Westinghouse Electric Corporation, which does business in Ukraine. Greg, is this another case where naming and shaming is going to be a deterrent? Yes and no. Um, I say no only because I particularly am talking about the criminal charges and the indictment. Look, we've been through this before. We, we did this when uh, the special counsel's office indicted 
12 GRU officials for their role in the DNC hacking. However, there was another naming and shaming that was done after this announcement by uh, Bellingcat, which shout out to Bellingcat if you have not read this blog entry from them. This was amazing. They found that some of the GRU operatives that have been named by the UK, the Dutch, and Mm -hmm. the US were registering cars to one address, and it was like 300 of them. It was like 300 people were registering cars to one address. And that address was found in a Russian database of like, uh, basically like a Russia DMV database. And all of the names, their real names, not aliases or anything like that, all of the names and all of the addresses of 300 GRU spies are, have been outed. They, wow. They've all been outed because this is out there. Now, that is naming and shaming. Yes. That's naming and shaming because you've not only disrupted their their hacking operations, but you've blown their cover. This is still spy stuff. When you blow their cover, that's really – that makes them have to re-up and change their game mm-hmm. and – that's going to take years. Like that's intelligence burned that was years in the making. And that's how you raise the bar. Like just burn the entire intelligence operation instead of just going, oh, we caught you doing this. Yeah. Like, because also it's an OPSEC thing. It's an OPSEC thing. To go, it's honestly a low key troll too, right. to say, ha ha, look at this. How could you be so dumb? Like, why would you not do this? In, in a way where this wasn't so easy for you to pick up. So yes, the naming and shaming is helping. It's just not necessarily through the US justice system. It's not necessarily coming through the US justice system where we're just firing off indictments and hoping that they travel and we'll pick them up through <laughs> Interpol or something like that. No, um, that's, not, that's not what's happening here. Again, shout out to Bellingcat for actually doing what I believe is more robust naming and shaming. Yeah. Amazing. So to North Korea now, FireEye on Wednesday christened a new APT calling out a distinct set of North Korean hackers for stealing millions of dollars used to finance the North Korean government. APT38, known for its destructive code and patience in poking holes in the international financial system, was behind the infamous $81 million heist on Bangladesh's central bank in 2016. The new group comes on the heels of that indictment of a North Korean hacker a few weeks ago. Uh, Jen, we've been very, very busy this week going Mm -hmm. after Russia and uh, North Korea. This doesn't necessarily have indictments on it, but I would love to get your thoughts on actually attaching a group name or an APT name to North Korea. I really love um, Bank Heist. I think it's great. Um, But, you know, I don't know really what this does for us, putting a name around it. Um, I think it helps establish behavior methods and it helps with attribution because the behaviors are the behaviors. We've seen this all the time. This is how forensics and these researchers work. They go, okay, here's a bunch of code and and here's a vulnerability that we've seen exploited and here's an exploit package that the coding looks familiar to something else that happened in 2015 or something like that. So I think it establishes a line of behavior 
and establishes metrics by which you can measure something and then helps ultimately with attribution to point the finger and go, you should watch out for this group and this is who this group is and this is their motives. That said, I'd, I'd probably want, if I'm a hacker and I'm selling millions of dollars, I probably want you to come up with a group name for me and I probably want to see it in the news a lot. So, Well, know, it helps it, that this is just the generic number yeah. and, and not, you know, a fuzzy snuggly duck or, you know prickly panda or you know one of those <laughs> one of those names that uh some folks okay, fair enough. I'd like, want a, like to do so name. yeah yeah, uh, yeah you would you would want something that sounds like a comic book hero but yes. okay we'll, we'll have to work on that so let's move back to the united states um the point office on cybersecurity and the dhs is on track for a rebrand the senate on wednesday passed the cybersecurity and infrastructure security agency act which would both codify the office into law and give it a more relevant name under the bill, DHS's National Protection and Programs Directorate would become the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. The House expected a final vote, sending a bill to the president. Greg, so what is really going to change? What is going to change is the fact that I think this is going to streamline a lot of what happens at NPPD. Um, you know, this bill has been kicking around for a while now, and it's going to get kicked back to the House to work out some tweaks to it. But I, I think this is really important because what when I say National Protection and Programs Directorate, does that mean anything to you? Nope. That, that Those are just words. Like, yeah. that, that doesn't mean anything to me Could be anything. either. Like, if I was not covering cybersecurity and somebody told me about that, I, I would be like, I don't that's got to be like a CIA thing because it's so generic that they don't want to actually talk about what they're doing. If I hear cybersecurity and infrastructure security agency, and oh, I, 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 I have a direct and clear-cut understanding of what this agency does. But, I mean, it's not just also about a name. It's about streamlining the way that they work. And, hey, I'm always for cutting back the red tape away from bureaucracy, because especially here, because I think it's very important that we streamline as much as possible when it comes to the bureaucracy and process part, because of things like, I don't know, China backdooring the server boards. Yeah. Like when we find that, we want to be able to communicate clearly and get messages not only out to the public, but spread throughout government. So if by renaming this and sort of reshaping the way that the agency looks, we're able to move faster when it comes to cybersecurity threats, I don't see how that's anything but a positive. So your weekly update on election security news. Elections officials want more federal assistance on security, but legislation that could help them with that is up in the air. At a summit on Capitol Hill held by the Election Assistance Commission this week, state and local officials who run the country's elections touted all the security improvements they've recently made, largely thanks to money from Congress and support from DHS. However, further legislative efforts to help out have failed or stalled. Lawmakers say that a bill like the Secure Elections Act could do a lot of what is already happening, but money would need to come in as well, and the state and Local election officials also talked about the need to get that money. So it's unclear if or when Congress will pitch in again, but it's clear that there's a lot of people that want a lot of money to fix this. Why hasn't Congress um, passed a law to, to give more money to the states? I mean, clearly this is a problem. I think that I don't have... I, I don't have a good answer for you. I, I really think that <laughs> this <laughs> should be. Yeah, I, I tried to come up with something there. Sorry. I, I, I don't know what to tell you on this. I think that this is extremely important and 
that money need more money needs to be allocated. I mean, the the money that was allocated this past summer was money that had been sitting around since like 2010. This is important. Like, I don't understand why there is the need to drag heels on this, but it's Congress, and that's what Congress does. I mean, just going back to the uh, DHS reorg bill we were talking about, that was a year and a half in the making. It doesn't have to be that hard. Like, bills, bills and legislation do not have to take this amount of time, especially for something that seems so clear cut, like let the states get money to fix their stuff and we won't have a problem Well, it just seems that we are all sort of, it's in the news every day. We're all kind of scared of election security. We all think something's wrong. You would think that we would just do an emergency bill, give more money to the states. Nothing's going to happen for the November election, but for the next one, it's going to be more important. But hey, let's move on to um, burgers. Fast food chain Burgerville revealed Wednesday that its customers' credit and debit card information was stolen by the international cybercrime group known as Fin7. The company, which is over 40 locations in Oregon and Washington, said customers that used a credit card at any of its locations between September 2017 and September 2018 should consider their card compromised. Burgerville says the information taken includes names, card numbers, expiration dates, and CVV numbers. Greg, looks like Fin7 is back in business. I don't know that they ever left. Um, this is really interesting in the fact that Fin7 just goes for whatever they can get. I mean, I'll be very honest. I'm an East Coast person. I've never heard of Burgerville until this breach came across my purview. Um, when you're attacking small and regional chains, like that's – it's it really is striking the lengths to which cyber criminals will go to gather credit card numbers. Um, also, I think one of the important things here is that small and local chains. If 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 you are somebody out there that has a small and medium business where you process credit cards, do not gather CVV numbers strictly because of instances like this. The CVV numbers are really the most important numbers when it comes to the way that cyber criminals gather this information when they go to sell this information on the dark web they're mm-hmm. going to get a higher return because they have all the information that right. unlocks yeah. these cards storing cvv numbers if you have to store the cvv numbers encrypt them as hard as you can what's the coin rate to get a credit card with a cvv number on the dark web i i honestly don't know off the top of my head but it's obviously going to be more than just having the number overall because this unlocks everything this unlocks specifically online purchases think about any time that that you go on any sort of online retail shop they ask you for your cvv number if you don't have that that's not going to process through therefore it obviously holds more weight when you go to sell something on the dark web when it comes to credit card numbers. So, look, Fin7, they just got popped by the DOJ in August, but they it's clear that there are more people attached than just the three that were arrested, and they are going to take credit cards all the same. They're just going to keep doing what they're doing, so Fin7 isn't going to go away anytime soon. So speaking of DOJ arrests... 
The Justice Department announced this week that Billy Anderson, a 41-year-old from California, admitted to conducting thousands of website defacements between 2015 and 2018. He pleaded guilty to two counts of these website defacements. Those counts defacing a New York City Comptroller's Office website in 2015 and a West Point Academy website in 2016. Anderson would reportedly display his alias, Alphabeto Virtual, and activist messages like Free Palestine and Free Gaza. Anderson faces 20 years in federal prison between the two felony counts. He is set to be sentenced in February. Jed, this guy's 41 years old. If he did this in 2015, he's probably 37, 38. Isn't it a little old to be acting like a script kitty at 37, 38? <laughs> if you hadn't told me his age, I would have thought... Ah, smart 13 or 14 year old. So yeah, way too old for this. Um, and he's got a terrible handle. Uh, <laughs> this is just, yeah, not, the, the hacker handle's not doing it for you? No, I mean, it's just kind of dumb. I don't know. I just, this is just stupid, right? I mean, let's act our age. Act, act your age. Don't deface what, like, to me, it just seems so, like, bottom of the totem pole when it comes to like malicious activity that you can do not that i'm trying to advocate for cyber criminals to go out and do their thing but it's like dude go go get a different hobby like the the, the website defacement to me just seems so lame Stupid, um yeah. so in, enjoy your jail time billy um okay the one big funding round this week to talk about Endpoint security company Tanium announced Tuesday that it earned $200 million in investor funding, claiming a valuation of $6.5 billion. That figure is compared to a reported $5 billion valuation that the company had just five months ago. Founded in 2007, Tanium is easily one of the most well-funded, privately-owned cybersecurity companies in the U.S. Jen, your thoughts? I mean, it's got some really big customers, right? So 12 or 15 big U.S. banks... Six of the top retailers, um, four arms of the military for the U.S., but that's a huge valuation. I'd love to see what the revenue numbers are, but I guess we won't know because it's private. Yeah, uh, and I would not be surprised if this was just more of a runway to get them to an IPO, which I'm really interested in seeing the the SEC documents when that does come eventually because that valuation to me just seems wild. That is a wild, wild, wildly high number, no? It, I mean, it really is. And, you know, you would like to think that if you've got a $5 billion or $6.5 billion valuation, that they would have at least 25% of that in revenue. And that's not likely. Yeah, l- let's talk about this a little bit because I feel like, look, we've, there's been a lot of funding news lately, and it just seems to me that these numbers lately are just – Wild, wild, like the the valuation of these companies is extremely, extremely high, and they in no way signify that the company has a you know lockdown cybersecurity solution that's going to be like the next big thing. So I, I'm wondering, from your perspective as an investor, how do you deal with that? I mean, does it matter to you whether the product works or not? Or is it just about the idea that the product works? I mean, look, I you know, the product working matters a lot to me. But the fact of the matter is that, you know, endpoint security, right? There's hundreds, thousands of companies that have gotten capital doing that. 
and so many are stuck at that sort of five million, ten million dollars in revenue and probably never get any bigger. And it's because their product doesn't work. And I think we see that sort of over and over again. Um, you know, you talk to companies like NSS Labs who look at some of this stuff and, you know, they'll point it out. And you talk to um, system integrators at like a BAE or Raytheon or Northrop Grumman, and you talk to the guys that are actually deploying these solutions and they've spent a ton of money on it. They're spinning it into um, customers and they'll tell you it doesn't work and they have to fix it to make it work for what they're doing. Um, and, you know, in at least a few instances, um, you know, over the years of my conversations, you know, they don't go back to the company and say, this is what's wrong and this is how you fix it. So I think we're just um, really scared of cybersecurity or of security breaches. And so we're throwing as much money as possible um, at these companies and there's a lot of competition. And so the valuations are sort of skyrocketing um, as we try to figure out what's going to work. I mean, yeah, interesting perspective. I'm trying to th think of a way that investors would be burned in the case of a big breach, but I don't, I, I don't see that happening. Like, I, I just don't see that happening. Like, not just a breach, but Tanium has had some issues in the past with the way that they market themselves. And they're not the only company that has had that problem. I know Silence mm -hmm. has had some issues yeah. as well. And it's clear that investors don't care. Like, uh, maybe I'm being a little bit too harsh. But, like, there's a, a way to conduct business here that I feel isn't. I mean, it, yeah, so I think investors care that whether it works or not. I just think we we don't always know. So I think you kind of take a flyer on a company this size and assume that everything works, right? And, you know, until someone proves that to be false, um, you know, clearly it's got a lot of revenue. You know, it's, it's so big that it's probably not going to fail. Interesting. And I'm sure these numbers will continue because the valuations just continue to go up and up and up. Oh, yeah. So now to this week's interview, we'll be talking to Grant Elliott, co-founder and CEO of Stendio, which works with healthcare providers, digital health companies, and medical device manufacturers on their cybersecurity posture. Grant talks about the state of the industry and how his company has evolved as the healthcare sector tries to secure its highly sensitive data. Joining us today is Grant Elliott, founder and CEO of Estendio. Grant, thanks for joining us. Great to be here. So Grant, kind of tell us a little bit about your start in cybersecurity. Sure. So I've always, I used to work in telecommunications and, you know, even back when I was in the UK, I get very much involved in the sort of quality side, procedural side and a lot of the jobs, even though that wasn't core to what I did. Um, when I left telecommunications in the sort of mid-2000s, I joined a digital health company. Uh, and originally that company was doing a lot of work in um, developing countries in Africa, uh, Middle East, uh, India, etc. And so there wasn't a huge call for us to have to drive and prove our um, cybersecurity uh, capabilities. But when we started signing customers in the US, we started getting major health systems coming to us and asking us you know, what we were doing with regards to our security program. Um, and because I was the chief operations officer at the time, this a natural place to sort of hand that to was to me. So I had a very sort of steep learning curve trying to sort of like go through audits from some of the major health plans, major providers. Um, and what I kind of discovered through that process was there really 
wasn't a lot of support out there. There were lots of you know, individual tools that did bits and pieces of what we wanted, but I was busy trying to pull this together with our ticket management system, email, with our SharePoint site, etc. And and so I really get kind of grounded on you know what we needed to do in that organisation, but also out of that organisation came the kind of gems of the idea, what if we could build almost like a Salesforce type tool okay. for security? And that's really kind of where the, the, the company came from. Okay. So, yeah, tell me a little bit more about Astendio and the focus that you guys have. Absolutely. So, as I mentioned earlier on, lots of organizations, there's no shortage of um, uh, security tools in the marketplace. The challenge is, one, um, security sits across multiple parts of the business. You know, you've got your, obviously, your IT organization, which is very invested in IT security type capabilities, uh, but your HR organization are managing the onboarding and offboarding of staff, you know, contracts, etc. from a staff perspective. You've got your uh, procurement organization or your legal organization. They're doing a lot with regards to third party and vendor management. And then you're just core operational processes that uh, rely on the integrity of the delivery of services. So when we talk about security in an organization, you know, we want to think that there's a person or a group that manages this, but the reality is people uh, across the entire organization responsible. And what we kind of realized was that there is no single tool that allows the entire organization to have you know, clear visibility of what's going on within the organization. So what uh, my VCM or my virtual compliance manager does, it's a single platform, it's a workflow solution that allows the organization to manage all aspects of their security program against over 100 uh, uh, regulatory standards and frameworks uh, and you know across everyone within the organization. What makes it really unique is not just the fact that it's a workflow solution that allows uh, you to actually complete the work through our platform, but also we actually roll the platform out to every single person in the organization. So whether you're the CEO, whether you're the, the, the chief information security officer, or whether you're you know, a general, normal, everyday worker that's coming into the office, uh, you're interacting with our platform on an ongoing basis, and it's through that information we gather your behavior, your activity, we're able to map that to the specific standards and regulations to determine whether you're doing what you should be doing. So you're in the healthcare space industry, Tell us more about um, insider threat and how the risk can be mitigated. Sure. So, I mean, we've started in healthcare. I mean, my background, obviously, as I mentioned before, is in healthcare, but we've expanded beyond that right now. But because of our start, you know, probably about 70 to 80% of our customers are still in that segment. Healthcare is a really interesting uh, ecosystem because for a couple of reasons. One, um, the, the very nature of, of the organization requires data to be shared. So it's unlike other ecosystems where you can really restrict who has access to certain data. Uh, patient information needs to be available for doctors, for nurses. You can go to a, you know, a clinic in another state and arguably you need access to certain information. So just by the nature of the way that data is shared, um, it becomes a, a different type of industry. Also, in terms of an investment perspective, healthcare is maybe 10, you know, you've heard people say, you know, if not more, years behind from an infrastructure perspective. So they really have a lot of archaic systems and that makes it again difficult for them to track and manage too much of the, uh, the old castle and moat technologies uh, that most other mature segments are moving away from. Um, and, and then I think finally, there's been this massive government push on digitization of data, which you know is a kind of an artificial push. Um, organ, you know, industries that kind of naturally evolve to that, um, they, they do it at a particular pace that allows them to build security safeguards into that. Uh, but from a from a healthcare perspective, uh, so many organisations were trying to uh, uh, meet the government's requirements to digitise patient records uh, that they basically prioritise that over security. So. You were talking about the data digitization and the archaic systems that the healthcare industry has. How do you 
protect all of that? Because look, I mean, or almost like, what's the number one threat to watch out for? Because I think about the data breaches that always happen. We we talk about you know the systems being archaic, so you're dealing with systems that might not have service support. I, I think like Microsoft Windows 98, like stuff like that. That's past end of life. You're going to have to pay Microsoft to guard against that. Or, you know, the influx of IoT devices and now we see ransomware attacks. I mean, there was just the LabCorp attack recently where that's not your traditional healthcare in the form of a hospital, but it's still in the healthcare sector and it's still something that obviously your company and companies like yours worry about. Is that the number one thing? Like, what are you worried about the most in the healthcare space? Well, I think one of the challenges is exactly that. I think people are looking for what is the thing to do. And the reality is, you know, the analogy I like to use is a bit like the health, your own health, right? Okay. You know, uh, you know, there's not one thing you need to do to maintain a healthy lifestyle, right? You, you want to eat properly, and that involves a lot of things. You want to exercise properly, that involves a lot of things. Um, you obviously want to get you know, preventative treatments, like you know, vaccinations. You want to go for regular checkups. You start looking around the different things you do, and there's more than just one thing you need to do. Organizations are exactly the same. I think the challenge that we've identified is, you know, a lot of the times it's not even just a lack of investment in security. Uh, there are, you know, we've mentioned already over 900 uh, uh, cybersecurity companies in this region alone, uh, 5% of their product companies. You go out to Silicon Valley and there's lots of, you know, cybersecurity companies out there as well. But you're not going to solve uh, the problem by going and investing a million dollars and some sort of log management tool, which uh, what a lot of companies are trying to do now. I kind of call this what I call the, the, the kind of colander strategy of, of, of some of the large organizations, right? They then spend their entire time basically talking about how waterproof their colander is because they spent a lot of time reinforcing it. But at the end of the day, it's still a colander and it's still going to let, you know, by design, water through. So, you know, what we've tried to focus on do is not be a single you know, a single solution. Our platform allows the organization to understand the risk and understand what's going on across the entire organization and allows them to make more effective investment decisions on the areas of their company uh, that they should be investing. Because you can't secure the company completely, but you can certainly significantly reduce the likelihood of a breach. You can increase your likelihood of identifying when a breach happens. I mean, you know, many organizations today, it takes on average close to two years for them to even know if a breach has taken place. And then again, what is their response when that happens? Do they have an effective response? So really the idea is really, you know, if you actually talk talk to a senior executive in an organization, a lot of the times they don't even know, right? You know, I make the joke a lot of the time in, in, in events I'm at, I can normally tell within two or three minutes of talking to the CEO of an organization whether they've got an effective cybersecurity program. Okay. Because if the first thing that comes out of their mouth is, I've got someone who manages that, then they really don't because every <laughs> single person within their organization, including the CEO, should understand the risk management structure, should understand everything that's going on in their organization. And likewise, you can talk to any employee of any organization. And if you ask them, do you have an effective cybersecurity program in your organization? If they don't know, then they don't because that means there's not effective training, there's not effective education. So again, there's multiple things we can do across the organization and that's not to preclude any of the great tools that are out there. But again, a single tool or a group of IT tools in itself is not going to be sufficient. So let's back up a little bit and talk about your conversations with the CEOs. How do you see those conversations going? Like, are they shifting more where more are starting to get it? Or are you still having those conversations like, no, I got a services guy, we're, we're, we're okay. I think what we're starting to see now um, 
and you know this is this has been shifting slowly. The winds of um, your things like GDPR, if you look at what's happening in California with the new privacy regulations, Colorado have just passed privacy regulations. Obviously, HIPAA has been around for a number of years. There's definitely an understanding at the governmental level that there needs to be more done, and whether that's enough or not, we can we can have that debate. From an organisational perspective, you really kind of divide this into a couple of tiers. There's you know the kind of large top five percent of organisations that have lots of budget, and for them it's a about what they do, not whether they do something. Most of them understand the need to protect data, and then it's really just about education, right? And you know, they're going to build their own organic tools to do things. And you know, it's not for me to to, to comment whether they do that well or whether they don't. But then you've got the rest, the, the the vast majority of organisations. The kind of target market we have is organisations between 100 employees and 1,000 employees, and we have some above and some below. Um, and those organisations, the question is focusing and, and motivating them to do something, because we have lots of those organisations. And as I said, yeah, absolutely some of the CEOs have got someone who does that and are not interested in whether they're doing that well. And the amount of conversations I'll have with a CEO who puts me onto their IT security guy and you talk to the IT security guy and he'll literally tell me about how they've encrypted databases, how they've hardened laptops, and they're not talking about onboarding and offboarding of staff or training or a lot of the core aspects. What to me is changing things, and if you take healthcare as an example, some of the major organisations are now making a requirement for their third parties to operate against a robust security programme. So if you want to uh, contract with United Healthcare, they're going to require you to be high trust certified. Now that, you know, without passing any comment on high trust itself as a framework, just the fact that you cannot contract with United Healthcare without going a, a, through a pretty robust process means that the organisation is now having to invest significant dollars on more than just buying a log management tool. Okay. Okay. Yeah, but then they're putting IoT devices in hospitals, and that's providing all kinds of potential threats, right? Yeah, and so this is the whole risk-reward of um, uh, uh, innovation generally. And, and the question really becomes that, you know, uh, if those hospitals themselves, I mean, I think it's worse than just the, the, all the IoT. Uh, if you look at you know, where the environment was maybe 15 years ago, uh, major organizations, if they contract with a third party, for the most part, they're contracting with a pretty big company. Uh, they're probably contracting to buy some software, some infrastructure that's going to be stored on-prem. So they've got levels of control over those devices, right? The IoT is just a subset of kind of cloud-based services today. So whether it's an IoT device or whether it's just some sort of SaaS device, increasingly you're seeing lots of these organizations contracting with third-party organizations that are providing some cloud-based service. Now, that, let's look at the profile of those cloud-based services. Today, you can basically get an Amazon account for nothing. You can go and get a Microsoft Azure account for nothing. You can set up a business today for practically nothing, right? You can be a 10, 20, 30 million dollar business with maybe 30, 40, 50 staff that was difficult for you to do 10 years ago. So the challenge now is, you know, if you actually have a look at these somewhat mature vendors, they're, they're, they're not only uh, significantly smaller and less mature from an infrastructure perspective, um, they've, they're also controlling a, a much larger portion of the data, right? right? Even if you go to hospitals, translation services are typically cloud-based. You look at how much data is going for uh, IA, right, and for machine learning, right? All this data has now been moved into multiple locations by these really, really small, less mature organizations. So the concept of third-party management has never been more important than it is right now. And not only has it gone from maybe a company having 10 key vendors, now they've got 100 key vendors and all these small ones. And they're not able to basically manage or maintain because they're still sending out their, you know, 10-year-old security assessment form, right? And, you know, from that perspective, you know, 
most organizations just say, yeah, we do that, we do that. Let me give you one example, right? You know, the federal government last year uh, required uh, um, all defense contractors uh, to be NIST 800-171 compliant by the end of last year. Okay. Right? That sounds like a, a completely uh, viable thing, and this 800 is a reasonably good framework. Now, how did they ensure that that was happening? They basically had them all fill out a form, self-attesting to the fact that they were NIST 800-171. Now, if I'm an organization, and my entire livelihood is dependent on me passing that, that, that certification, and the only thing I need to do is fill out a form and say that I've done it, well, when I fill out that form, I'm going to be very generous to myself Correct. Right? in terms of how I answer those questions, especially when those questions are things like, you know, do you encrypt your databases? I might have 300 databases, I encrypt one, I'm going to say yes, right? So there needs to be more assurance done to make sure that organizations are doing what they say they do, because right now it's too easy for most organizations to basically say they're doing certain things. And the cybersecurity industry is just as much to blame for that, because they don't do enough vetting when they actually give out cybersecurity policies. So I think as an industry, as we start maturing, we're going to start seeing, and we're starting to see larger organizations get more robust in how they vet their third parties because they have to. Cybersecurity companies get more robust in terms of how they vet companies before they pay out claims because they have to. And that is going to continue to drive to a, a kind of more robust and more secure environment. Do you think a lot of that has to do with the privacy laws that we were talking about with, you know, we have HIPAA and GDPR, but we also were talking about, you know, there's California and Colorado laws. So on top of like the NIST policies that you see, do you think these other policies are also driving the way that hospitals and healthcare are shaping their cybersecurity apparatus? Yeah, so I think, so I, I, I separate it into two, two different aspects. One is, you know, are there rules and regulations out there that people understand? NIST has been around for many, many years. There's lots of frameworks that have been around. You know, I, I get frustrated sometimes when I go to events and think that the answer is more training and more education. There's more than enough frameworks and information out there for organizations to know what to do. The challenge is, it's, you know, it's carrot and stick, right? The question becomes, are people motivated to do it? Uh, the, you know, your question on GDPR, your question on, 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 on California, that's a kind of cart and horse kind of, kind of question. What's coming first, right? Is it bad behavior that's driving those regulations or are those regulations? And you know, I, I think actually what's happening is, I mentioned earlier, the environment's changing, there's more breaches, uh, people want more accountability, so these regulations are basically gradually being brought in. I, I personally think they're only going to increase. Uh, I think the big impact of GDPR is going to be that, you know, in five years' time, the world is not going to have fallen apart. Companies are going to have evolved to basically adopt and be able to meet the requirements of GDPR. So the naysayers that basically say it's going to kill business, it's going to kill the economics, are going to uh, be proved wrong. And then suddenly, you know, because let's face it, you know, if we didn't have regulations, the airplanes would be falling out of the sky. And the airline industry is doing very well, thank you very much, right? So, the, the, you know, we can have this debate about how much government regulation uh, that should be in there. Personally, my view is, um, you know, regulation is one tool. Um, what I don't understand is why is there not more uh, government assistance, right? Why are we not giving tax credits to companies that basically give their employees cybersecurity training? Why are we not giving tax credits to companies that basically are able to demonstrate they're going through some sort of thing? So, 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 so reward people as much as, as, as and make sure that there's a, a stick there if they're not following it. And I think if we do that, we're going to start seeing better behavior. So, why do you think cybersecurity in healthcare particularly is less mature than other industries such as finance? So, well, I think I think there's a couple of things. I think one, um, so 
this might sound ironic, but you know it's more under attack than finance, and you know that's down to the value of the data. And, and this is kind of widely written about the fact that you know um, a, a credit card number is worth way less than a patient uh, record, mainly because there's enough protection in place that can you know, shut your account down. You've got you've got limits, etc. Whereas a healthcare record can be used for 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 many many years to lay down uh, a false identity. But really, most of it's down to the incentives, right? I mean, if you look at um, the incentives in the finance industry is to make money. And if they're losing money and there's no trust in the system, then uh, you know they're not going to make money. The incentive in the healthcare system, you know, we can have a, <laughs> a debate about what the incentive is. But m many people that run, if you go into most major health systems, uh, it's, they're very doctor centric. They're very service orientated. And you know what they do have the mirrors the focus is very much about making money. A lot of the key decisions are made about how do we improve the patient care, how do we improve uh, the key aspect of, of delivery of that care, etc. So it just doesn't have the same. Uh, the same driver, the same equality of driver. The other aspect as well is, have you heard of a, of, of a major health system shut down because of a data breach? No. no, it doesn't happen, right? I mean, you talk to people and if they find that their doctors had a data breach, right, do they stop going to the doctor? Do they stop going to that hospital? Are you going to go to the next city because you're not happy with the privacy requirements of, of the particular hospital you're at? No, I mean, if you're in an emergency situation or even you just, you know, from a convenience perspective, you're going to go to the doctor or the hospital that, that, that's convenient. And then if you think of it from a payer perspective, I mean, Anthem had a major breach a couple of years ago. Most people didn't even know they were covered by Anthem. I mean, Anthem's a major organization, right? right? 80 million records breached. But then you actually start looking at the subsidiary companies that they actually own that were involved in that breach. People were getting letters that had no idea that Anthem was even involved in it as well. So I think, you know, healthcare, because of many of those reasons, it's not really been the incentive for them to basically drive it. I had um, dinner uh, a few months back with the CIO of a major Midwest healthcare company, right? Okay. They're about an eight, nine billion dollar healthcare company. And uh, he told me that uh, cybersecurity and security wasn't even his top 10 things that he did in his, his monthly meeting. Didn't even make them. Didn't even make them. Again, he had a security team to manage that. His focus was on growing from being an $8 billion organization to being a $10 billion organization. That was his focus. And so I think it's really, you know, trying to change that mindset, trying to change that philosophy. I think it is changing, but it's just very slow. So we end this interview usually on a random question. And the last time I saw you, we were going on a road trip. <laughs> um, what's your favorite road trip snack? What, what, road what trip it? snack? Like... Oh, road trips and that. Oh, it has to be Swedish fish. Okay. Yeah. Very nice. Yeah, I, I, I tend to be a little bit addicted to Swedish fish, right? So that 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 does my my kids and my my, my wife have different ones, but for me, there's always a bag of Swedish fish in the back and in the car. Nice. Great, Grant. Appreciate you taking some time out to talk with us. Thanks oh, it's been time. a pleasure. Thank you very much for inviting me. I look forward to it. Cheers. Thanks again to Grant. I'm gonna go sink my teeth into a bag of Swedish fish while I brace myself, which for more news because I I know it's coming. Just, um, I'm sure that we're going to be having the same conversation about news crushing us um, sometime next week. But in the meantime, I will say that speaking of this month, we are coming up on DC Cyber Week, October 15th through the 19th. Check out more information on dccyberweek.com. Also, check out Cyber Talks. That's going to be our marquee event on Thursday of that week. The roster looks great. We're going to be talking about all the things that we talk about on the podcast. Election security, national security, workforce stuff, venture capital. All of it is going to happen at CyberTalks. So check us out. And you can catch me in Canada on the 16th talking about cybersecurity trends. So thanks, everyone, for listening. As always, stay curious.